Good morning. Um, recently, uh, when more than 700 young people were asked in a study to share their perceptions of the Bible, one respondent said, I come from a Christian family and hear about the Bible at home. It puts me off, he complained. It's rubbish, said another person in the study. And one brutally honest person said, the Bible is more boring than watching paint dry. And sadly, uh, my fear is that others may share these opinions. The scripture we'll study this morning, starting in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, provide one of my favorite counters to these types of views. It, it is beautiful scripture. And um, to set it up, we're first going to do a little background, okay? And it's awesome background. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to have our message, okay? So first we're going to do a little background. Somewhere around the year 1020 B.C., a young brave shepherd boy from Bethlehem named David defeats a nine-foot-tall Philistine war hero from Gath named Goliath. And we're all at least a little familiar with the story of David and Goliath, which is found in and around the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. And after defeating Goliath, David rises in rank and reputation as a relentless soldier and skilled military leader under the reign of King Saul. One day, after returning from battle in 1 Samuel 18, the people dance and sing in front of King Saul. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And as you know, King Saul didn't like that little song one bit. Saul becomes violently jealous of David. And he tries unsuccessfully on numerous occasions to get David killed or to have David killed in battle. And Saul's jealousy becomes so great, he finally begins hunting David, his most celebrated and faithful soldier, like a dog. And David is forced to run for his life. 1 Samuel 21, we read that David flees to the city of Nob, where he visits a high priest there named Ahimelech, and the, who the Bible says trembles at the sight of David, apparently because of David's, fierce reputa David's reputation as a fierce and tenacious soldier. And, and David asks Ahimelech for some food. And all Ahimelech, the high priest, can offer is some day-old consecrated bread from the temple. Then David says, listen, I had to leave town so fast, I didn't have time to grab a weapon or a sword. Can, can you give me a weapon or a sword? Now, if I was David and I was looking for a sword or a weapon, I wouldn't ask a priest, but that's just me. Um, Ahimelech answers David that the only weapon he has is the actual sword of Goliath that David himself had used to cut off Goliath's head when he defeated him in battle. David says, I'll take it. Now remember, back before David fights Goliath, he tries to wear King Saul's armor, you remember? And he can't, presumably because it's too big or clunky. And think about it. Goliath was over nine feet tall, far bigger than Saul, okay? And so picture David here, dragging the fancy sword of this nine foot tall dead guy across the countryside running from King Saul. This is David. From there, still on the run from King Saul, we read in chapter 21, beginning with verse 10, that David flees to the city of Gath. And you'll remember from a minute ago that Gath was the hometown of his old adversary, Goliath. And we read in verse 12 that David's worried that he'll be recognized, which is a pretty good bet when you've killed the town's war hero and you're dragging his sword everywhere you go, right? Okay, so we read in 1 Samuel 21, 13 that David, to try and distract people from realizing who he is, begins to act like he's completely insane, like he's gone crazy. And he begins clawing at the outside of the walls of the gate. Okay? And the other thing is he let, starts letting big, huge amounts of spit pour down his beard. Okay? And um, you've got to love a Bible story with people acting crazy and big amounts of spit cake to your beard. Okay? 
And um, wouldn't it be awesome, I hope he's here, to get choir director Steve Burns to reenact this whole thing. Okay? Maybe next week, uh, Steve. And, and the King of Gas comments are, are all about all of this in verses 14 and 15 are fabulous, okay? Here's what he says in the Bible translation called The Message. The king of Gath looks at David acting all crazy, and this guy scratching at the city walls and big amounts of spit pouring down his beard. And the king of Gath says this, Can't you see he's crazy? Why did you let him in here? Don't you think I have enough crazy people to put up with as it is without adding another? Get him out of here. It says that in the Bible. He's obviously not an elected official, right? Okay, but it says that in the Bible. Isn't that awesome? So after getting kicked out of Gath, apparently because he's insane, in chapter 22, David finally makes his way to a remote cave near a city called Agilom. I hope I pronounced that right, which is about 12 miles from the hometown of Beth, from his hometown of Bethlehem. And we'll pick up there in a minute. And the story at this point jumps to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 23, which is where you'll find it and where we'll pick up in a minute. But before we do that, Let's think about about this as we look at this quote uh, I showed you earlier. Let's summarize what we've just covered in five chapters of the Old Testament, okay? You've got reigning King Saul, a violently jealous, pretty crazy king, hunting David, the good, anointed king-to-be, who's just acting like he's crazy, as he runs from town to town, chomping on a loaf of day-old consecrated bread from the temple, washing it down with a beard full of spit, and pulling the the sword of a nine-foot-tall Philistine dead guy. Is this the Sherwin-Williams watching paint dry type of, of, of Bible story that this per, to which this person was referring? One of the most convicting quotes I've ever read, and I've used it before, says that if you study the Bible and it doesn't lead you to wonder and awe, then you haven't studied the Bible. And do you know the best part of the story? The best part of the story, we haven't even gotten to the best part of the story and, and, and how it should create a sense of wonder and awe in us. So let's pray for our message, and then we'll study the best and the rest part of this lovely Old Testament story. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And uh, I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, as we put all this together, I just wonder, what, what am I saying, Father? And just pray that you would be in the things that, that I say and in, the, in our thoughts this morning. And... Uh, we know that if you're in them, it really doesn't matter what I say. And I pray that I would fall away and that you would pour out your love in our time together this morning. And that our thoughts, the things that I say, that we would pour them out to you. And that you would be pleased and you would be honored in our time here this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for your gorgeous word. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, now your Bible should be open to the Old Testament book of Second Samuel chapter 23. And we're going to pick up with verses 13 and 14 there, where it says, During harvest time, three of the thirty chief men came down to David at the cave of Agilom, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. We see here that David is, is, is hiding out from Saul in the cave of Agilom, when three of his finest, most loyal soldiers, referred to in the scriptures as mighty men, come to him. How would you like to have the title, Mighty Man, on your resume, or on your business card, especially if you were still dating, okay? And um, although it's impossible to know for sure which mighty men come to David in the cave, you get the impression from reading verses 8 through 23 that, th- that these, these three may have included at least some of the guys listed there. 
you also get the impression that these mighty men were Clint Eastwood, Vinny, Vin Diesel, Green Beret types of dudes. These guys were bad. All right? Verse 8. Look at verse 8. Joshua Bassebeth, he was a mighty man. Scripture says he raised his spear against 800 men and bested them in just one battle. That's like every seat here being filled and Pastor George rumbling with all of us and Pastor George winning. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. Or look at verses 9 and 10 about a guy named Eleazar. The men of Israel were battling the Philistines in a place called Paz Danim when the Israelites decide to retreat, except for David and Eleazar. Not only did David and Eleazar stand their ground, Scripture says these two guys actually taunt the Philistines. Okay? Imagine that. The army retreats. David and Eleazar are standing there alone, and they decide to talk smack to the Philistines and say, Oh man, you guys are really in trouble now. All right? And, and, and they fight so long and so bravely, they actually had to pry Eleazar's sword from his tired hands. Eleazar was a mighty man. Or how about verses 20, and 20 through 23 about a mighty man named Benaiah? Verse 23 shares that Benaiah was David's head bodyguard. And we see that one day Benaiah jumped into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. The guy beat up a lion. All right? Verse 21 shares that when Benaiah went to fight a huge Egyptian, he packed a club. And the huge Egyptian, yeah, he packed a spear. Don't you hate it when you, you pack a club for a spear fight, okay? It doesn't matter, the Bible says, Benaiah won anyway. Benaiah was a mighty man. And we read that three faithful, elite, mighty men like these come to David when he's hiding out from Saul. And while they're together, in verse 15, we read that David gets thirsty and laments, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Exclamation point. And remember that the well outside of Bethlehem is 12 miles away and is held by the Philistine army who are known as very fierce fighters and having vastly superior weapons. And this is why it doesn't say mighty man on my business card. Because if I was there and the king said he wished he could have a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, I would have said, yeah, that's a bummer. Or let me bring you a Diet Coke. All right? But that wasn't the response of the three mighty men. Look at verse 16, where we read that the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. And there are a few things that I want to point out here that are real basic, but, but it should be convicting to us in a way as well. One, it doesn't say the mighty men snuck past enemy lines or called the deep rock water guy and had the water brought to them. It says they broke through enemy lines and did this at great personal risk to themselves. Two, it doesn't say David commanded or asked anyone to bring him this water. It was just something he longed for. And what really matters is point three, and it's so beautiful. Why did these three men faithfully fill this request? Why? When it wasn't a command or even a necessity from David. They did it because it was something that the one they followed desired. It was something that would please, bringing the water from the gate near the well, the well near the gate of Bethlehem was something that would please their king, something that would please the one they followed. Now let's read what David does in response in verses 16 and 17 when they bring him the water. It says, David refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. David refused to drink the water that he'd wanted so badly. And, and what would the world say to this? What would the world say if we'd gone 24 miles round trip through heavy fighting in a place like Iraq 
for Afghanistan to bring a glass of water for our king, only to have him pour it out and make mud with it. Don't you think some of us might say, what a colossal waste. What a waste. And what's with the blood comment? David says, far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? David regarded the sacrifice of these mighty men as so precious, so wonderful, and purchased at so great a price that he saw it as sacred. And to take that sacred gift and to consume it for himself, now that would truly be a waste. And and to the Israelites, blood symbolized life and was treated with great respect. And when an Israelite poured out blood as an offering, he was acknowledging the sacredness of life. And so in pouring out the faithful gift of these men, David was doing the only thing appropriate for a precious gift of this magnitude. He took the sacred offering and he poured it out as an offering to God. Fast forward more than a thousand years to two important events that we looked at last Sunday in church. It says in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, that the night he was betrayed, Jesus takes the bread, offers thanks, breaks it, gives it to his disciples and says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus' body, his blood, his life, so precious and so great, so sacred as to not be kept, but instead to be sent and poured out as an offering for the forgiveness of sins to be poured out for you and for me. Last Sunday, we also observed Pentecost and the absolutely wild events surrounding the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And my hope is that we never become so churched so learned, so used to the gospel message that we forget how wild and uncontainable it all is. I think the events of that day are are summed up real well by this picture here. This picture preaches big time to me about the Holy Spirit. You see that little guy there? Just listen to some of the descriptions associated with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. Verse 3, what seemed to be tongues of fire separate and come to rest on all people. It says the people are bewildered. It says the people are perplexed. It says the people are amazed. And Peter, the guy we talked about last week, the guy who denied Christ three times in one night, steps forward and speaks to the crowd from every nation under heaven and confirms the prophecies in the book of Joel, which he shares again in Acts 2, beginning in verse 17. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. And then Peter says in verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out 
what you now see and hear. And verse 37 says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. You know, and in a way that almost seems frantic to me when I read it, they asked Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's answer is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And verse 41 tells us that 3,000 were added to their number that day. The result of that Spirit being poured out, verses 42 through 47, says that the people were devoted to teaching, fellowship, the sharing of material blessings, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, it says. Wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. People had everything in common. People ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. His Spirit, so precious, so great, so sacred, is to not be kept but instead to be sent and poured out for you and for me. And I believe with all my heart that that's not watching paint dry. I showed you these quotes when we started. Um, you know the one that was hardest for me to read in light of all the incredible scripture that we've, that we've come to know and we've, we've heard this morning? It's this one from another story where young people complain that Christianity today no longer looks like Jesus. It's a really indicting statement to me. When people look on us today, how we live, how we see the scripture, they don't get a glimpse, not the faintest shadow, not the slightest notion of the God whose towering, unceasing, uh, incredible love is like this. The Bible says that God is love. It says that his love is perfect. It says he does not change. It says we're made in his image. And I don't think people who say things like this that I've told you this morning are the problem. It's not the Bible and it's certainly not God. I don't even believe that there's less love in the world than in times past. When I see comments like I've shown you, I think it shows that we, as followers of Christ, have a drinking problem. A problem of too often taking a love and a message so precious and so great, so divine and so sacred, and drinking it in ourselves without pouring out the slightest bit for others. How else do you explain how we can go from the incredible experience that we've looked, experiences we've looked at this morning in scriptures uh, to the comment that I've, I've shown you? What things do you hold most precious in your life, be they your time, your talent, your treasure, and most of all, the people you love? Do you hold, and what do you do with them? Do you hold them tight? Do you keep them to yourselves? Or do you pour them out as an offering to God? Our time and our talent, it seems like they've never been more rare and in more demand than they are now. What do you do with them? Do you consume them? Do you pour them out? We've got to pour them out. In the time we spend with God, joyfully in prayer, reflection and study, in, his service, in service to His church, children, and his church. We've got to pour them out. And how about our treasure, our tithes and our offerings? Never has our treasure been more rare and in shorter supply, it seems. All the more reason to pour it out. I read a Fortune magazine article that called tithing an irrational act. That sounds a lot like David taking the water and pouring it out and making mud with it, doesn't it? Our treasure, we've got to pour it out. 
Our bulletins lately have shown that we're more than 56% behind on our missions giving for this year. Realize this. The missions campaign is not an effort to collect money. It's not an effort to collect money. It's an effort to go out and, and, and assist in pouring out the love of God and His Spirit on people around the world. But first, you've got to pour it out. We've got to pour it out. And even though we worship a God who commands us not to test him, do you know what he, what he says about this in the book of Malachi? He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. But to test him in this, we first got to pour it out. We've got to pour it out. And there's more way, one more way I want to mention that we can participate in pouring out God's love, and it's my favorite. And in my opinion, it's the most beautiful way. And I've never told this story. I have boxes of stories, and I've never told this story. An amazing thing about this is you don't have to know a lot of doctrine or to be able to beat up 800 Philistines to be able to do it. In fact, any person in the room can do it, and many of you have. Here's the story. Um, in 1980, this is kind of a, a neat summer for me, because in 1980, I was the same age as, as my two oldest children are, who were sitting over here, and uh, I was starting my seventh grade year at Carmody Junior High School, just down the street, go Cobras, and um, three things, there were three things I feared as I started junior high school. One, getting beat up by eighth grade boys. Two, getting in trouble in class. I was an exceptional or at least well-behaved student. And three, I was petrified of girls. Petrified. I was painfully, painfully, painfully shy. And um, I didn't know anything about anything in seventh grade. I didn't know how to open my locker, so I had to keep everything in, that I owned with me in this big, fat notebook that was just full of papers. And I had to carry it like this. And I made this kind of a mistake, Mom, um, of asking my mom, what do eighth grade, seventh grade boys wear to school? And she said, you know, seventh grade boys, they don't wear jeans. They dress a lot nicer. And she said, you know what seventh grade boys wear is they wear bell-bottom cords, and they wear cords. And weirdly, the two colors of cords she bought me are cloud blue and lemon yellow. Okay? And you know the sound that cords make when you walk. And so here's me in seventh grade, junior high, walking through the halls with my big notebook and my lemon yellow cords going, whoop, 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 whoop. and the first week of school, I was sitting alone up front um, of the bus, and this eighth grade boy sits down next to me, puts his arm around me, kind of leans over and kind of smiles and grins at me and says, those are really nice cords. And he got up and went back to the bus, the back of the bus, and the whole eighth grade class just had a great time laughing at me. It was not my finest hour. And that same week, one of my first classes was, third, was uh, first year Spanish. And uh, I was sat in the front row, and uh, they had moved this girl next to me, probably because she was talking, and she had these big old glasses and braces. And this girl talked and laughed all the time, all the time. And she continued to talk to me or try to get me to talk to her, and I did what my mom always said. If somebody's distracting you or trying to be a bad example, you need to ignore her. You need to ignore him. And so I ignored her. And she wasn't having any part of being ignored. She was not going to put up with that. And so she kept talking to me. And finally I leaned over and I said, be quiet. You're going to get us in trouble. And she continued to talk anyway. And I ignored her. And she took a pen and she started to write on my arm because I wasn't going to do anything about it. And so I had this dilemma. Am I going to talk to this girl and get her to stop? 
Or am I going to listen to the teacher? Well, I'm a good student. I did what my mama said, and I listened to the teacher. And she continued to draw on my arm, and she did this seemingly every day of seventh grade. And you'd think someone who feared getting in trouble with the teacher hated that, but I'll tell you what, I loved it. I loved it. For six years, six years, she was the only girl who ever talked to me, ever. And, um, and over the six years, she got prettier and, you know, we got to be better friends. And she became the standard by which I evaluated all girls. Can I talk to these girls like I talk to her? Is she, are these girls as cute as this girl? And finally, I got smart in my senior year. I thought, wouldn't it be cool? Why don't I just try to date this girl who is your standard rather than other people? And so, um, and I remember exactly how this worked. She was, she had a boyfriend and uh, it was Christmas time and she asked me to go downtown with her to pick out something for her boyfriend, which doesn't look too promising for me as a dating proposition. But um, I remember exactly where it happened. We were going down Wadsworth and turning onto 6th Avenue, just on the, the curve that puts you onto 6th Avenue. And we were talking about something and I made the comment, you know, I don't ever want to be one of those weirdos, uh, weirdos like those born-again Christians who wear sheets and hand out flowers at the airport. That, that's what I said to her. That's what I said. And um, I didn't know how to read the Bible. I didn't know anything about having a relationship with Jesus. I didn't know anything about anything. The only, the, my perceptions, my opinions of all that were based on what other people had told me. That, that's how I had formed my beliefs. I was one of these people who are like the quotes that I've shown you on the screen. I was one of those people. And it got really quiet after I said that. And um, after what seemed like hours, she finally quietly said in kind of a hurt way, Oh, I'm a born-again Christian. And um, I wish I could say that it made me wonder about where I was going to spend eternity. I wish I could say it made me wonder about where I stood in my faith. But I have to say that really my only fear at that time was that I had blown, completely hammered any opportunity I'd ever have to kiss this chick. And, um, and that was my fear at the time. But grace and forgiveness abound. And uh, at the, the end of February, that same year of our senior year, we went on our first date. And you guys, it was delightful. It was absolutely wonderful. And I took a job making a minimum wage at a bakery and scraped together enough money to take, uh, to take her to our senior prom. And uh, the night of our prom, I went to take her home, and she gave me two things. She gave me this Bible, which has my name inscribed on it, and uh, she gave me this note, and she wrote it on April 29, 1986, and she was so afraid about how I might respond when she gave this to me. She waited two weeks to kind of get up her gumption to give it to me, but here's a couple sentences of what she wrote. She said, Dear Brian, I was thinking about how much you mean to me, and the best way for me to show you was to share the most important thing in my life. I'm not trying to push what I believe on you, just to share what makes my life worthwhile. And, uh, you know, no doctrine, no diagrams, no, here's what I believe and why I believe is right and why what, I, what others believe is wrong. Just an 18-year-old girl sharing what made her life worthwhile in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, that summer, we continued to talk about it. And uh, then she went off to her college, and I went off to my college. And in the fall of my freshman year, I, I did learn to read the Bible, and I learned what the Bible was and how magnificent it was. And um, 
that fall in my dorm room as I was preparing to go to Bible study one night. God poured out the miracle of his son and his Holy Spirit into my life. And that's not watching paint dry. And it's not rubbish either. And I can't remember, I can't remember the last day that I didn't thank God for that girl. can't remember. Make no mistake, God decided the timing, His Son did the work on the cross, and the Spirit did the transformation. But also make no mistake, when that 18-year-old girl was called to be faithful and pour out the most important thing in her life, she was faithful. And we talked about being a mighty man and amazing feats like beating up Philistines and beating up lions. Uh, But in pouring out what made her life worthwhile, you guys, that girl played a part in doing something eternal. Can Can I tell you something? Eternal? It's like a really long time. A really long time. And it's far more lovely, far more beautiful, far more mighty, and far more amazing than beating up Philistines and lions. What things do you hold most precious in your life, be they your time, your talent, your treasure, and most of all, the people you love? What are those things of greatest, most precious, most immense value to you, and what do you do with them? Do you hold them tight, or do you keep them to yourself, or do you pour them out as an offering to God? We've got to pour them out, if for no other reason than because it's pleasing to our King. And because it's in His Son, And in his spirit, he did the same thing for us. We're going to pray, and uh, then you'll be excused for the morning, okay? Father, thank you for your word. And that every time we open it, it it is magnificent. And it is lovely. And it's because you are magnificent and you are lovely. Thank you so much for pouring out your word into our lives. Mostly, Father, thank you so much for pouring out your Son and your Spirit into our lives as well. And Father, as we go about our days um, and things that we do, we pray that we would follow your example, the example you've given us, in pouring out those things that are precious to us, our time, our talent, our treasure, and those things that we hold most dear and offering those up as a pleasing, we hope a pleasing offering to you. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. And uh, we Uh, Pray for us all this week. In your name we pray. Amen.